Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. We're also brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their hellhound roast, witch's brew, devil's night roast, or sinful delight, order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Aaron Kuntz is a writer, director, and producer and founder of Paper Street Pictures. Aaron made his feature debut with Camera Obscura and most recently directed one of the core stories in Scare Package, featured on the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs. Aaron most recently released The Pale Door, a horror western about a group of cowboys who take shelter in a brothel only to find out it's a coven of ravenous witches. Pale Door was a refreshingly original blast of a movie and is now streaming on VOD and coming soon to Shudder. Aaron was also executive producer on Starry Eyes from 2014. I really enjoyed my conversation with Aaron, and I think you will as well. Please give it up for Aaron Kuntz. Aaron Kuntz, how's it going, man? Hey, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being here. Of course. Thanks for jumping on the podcast. Excited to finally talk to you. Pale Door, Scare Package, lots to discuss here. It's weird to release two movies within about two months. So, um, But uh, before we begin, I just want to say, uh, you know, just definitively, uh, Black Lives Matter. We have an opportunity right now to do something about this. So inaction is, is not, uh, is complicit. So just wanted to say that. And uh, yeah, let's talk about horror movies. Cool, man. Yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, no problem. So scare package. I mean, anthologies. I love anthologies. I don't know why they're like they're so taboo nowadays in the in the horror community. They're, it, it, they feel like the new redheaded stepchild after found footage. But I love both. I love found footage. I love anthologies. I was it was refreshing to see a new one. I, I was so psyched by, and really enjoyed Nightmare Cinema that Mick Garris did, you know, with all his other amazing directors. But uh, so how does a anthology horror movie like this one come together? So my writing partner, Cameron Burns, uh, had been pushing us for a while to make an anthology just because we knew so many great filmmakers that we loved. 
And I think it's, you know, as a, as a director, you know, I don't get to work with other directors as much. Mm. So, uh, you know, we wanted to move into producing as well. And we're doing that too, but this was a great opportunity just to kind of, you know, work with our friends and work with people that we had admired. So that was where that started. But I also didn't want to do it because I just saw there are too many great anthologies that are already out there. And I didn't know what interesting or new we could have to say. Um, I thought that, especially when you look at even the more modern ones, including, you know, mix uh, nightmare cinema, but then South Southbound in particular is one of my favorites. Like I love Southbound and what they did and the cohesiveness of that. Um, VHS two, I think is one of the greatest ones ever made. Truly. I believe that. And so, you know, I look at that, I'm like, well, we can't compete with that. <laughs> like, what, what are we trying to do? Um, <laughs> But uh, but then I went and I'm a little OCD and that weekend I went and just watched all of the anthologies I could and just took notes, took like weird, you know, mm. weird notes about everything that I liked, didn't like, pluses, minuses, and kind of eventually just realized that if you focus everything, I love the comedy bits. I always love the comedic segments. And I was like, I've never seen anything. I mean, Tales of Halloween is a little, leans a little more comedy than others, but mm -hmm. I hadn't seen one that was all comedy. And I was like, well, let's do all horror comedy. And then, and then let's also find a way to kind of, you know, poke fun at those tropes and, and, you know, things like found footage and stuff like that. We didn't get to tackle on this one. Um, we hope to in the future, but, but I mean, there's, you know, if you could, if you could do that and then bear heavy at the same time, I think that becomes like a special, a special embrace while still being referential about uh, this, this genre that we're in. Yeah. And I love just gleefully funny horror movies that really embrace the comedic element. And again, I don't know why it is so just trashed in the horror community to try to do horror comedies, but it's, it, it just, people seem to just shit talk the idea of horror comedies, which I never understood. Um, but yeah, it was again, super refreshing to see you guys just embrace something that was so funny but delivered the gore and delivered the scares and uh and like that so yeah it was a blast yeah yeah i don't get the i don't get the backlash on horror comedy either i mean i, I don't really get it there are two sides to the same coin you know and 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 i think that you'll even see in some of the scariest movies people start to laugh and that's because they're uncomfortable you know and there's ways of doing that so you're listening this response out of people and, and look, we're, we're not really going for the scares and scare package as much. It's, uh, it's really, it's definitely the comedy and the gore and having fun. And, and it's for the diehard horror fans. I mean, completely, that's what it's for. So, um, but, but yeah, look, I don't know. I, I challenge anybody that if you're not just super cynical and just kind of that, that you couldn't at least smile or maybe hopefully have an okay time watching some of it if you're all oh, yeah. fan. So that's, that's kind of a, that was kind of a big part of what we did because our, our first feature was just a downer to watch with crowds all the time. So <laughs> this was, uh, you know, we wanted to do something fun and we think we did. So let's talk about your overall history. I mean, how did you find yourself in the, uh, I mean, you're a producer, you're a writer and you're a director. How did you find yourself in the, in the film industry? Goodness. Uh, so, I mean, I went to film school at Full Sail in uh, the early 2000s and then worked freelance from that and just whatever I could do. I mean, I would, you know, I'd get anybody's coffee gladly anytime. And, you know, uh, but it was tough. That was in Florida. There wasn't a really robust film industry at the time. Right. And uh, I kind of got derailed for a while and ended up working in the video game industry. Not there's anything wrong with that. I had a great time and met, met and worked with some great people, but it just wasn't where my passion was. And uh, I worked there in tech and kind of, you know, sideswiped side my career a little bit. And then in 2012, uh, a, a few folks that I met in the gaming industry, who we all were former film students and wanted to get back into this, 
we decided to start a company. So we started Paper Street Pictures at that time. And it was just, you know, I had written a, I'd written one feature during that time with uh, Cameron Burns, my co-writer. And we just, you know, we didn't know what to do. Like, okay, we wrote a feature. What the hell's next? <laughs> like, where, where do you go from here? And, uh, you know, a shocker, that feature's never been made. And it shouldn't be because it was awful. We wrote an awful script. Um, it's funny a couple of times, but, uh, but other than that, it's not going not gonna to work. Right. But, but uh, yeah, then we just started making short films. And I think it was about, you know, I had directed some things uh, back when, when I was freelance in the early 2000s, but I just knew I was really rusty and, and we, we just wanted to teach ourselves what modern filmmaking was about. I mean, I learned on a 35 millimeter camera and on, you know, 16 millimeter Aries, you know, so it's just a different, it was a different world. So mm-hmm. I had to, you know, I, I kind of throw myself into that and we did and made a couple shorts that were, again, awful <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and failed a lot. Um, I mean, we've made shorts that nobody's ever seen oh, wow. because because they were so bad. Uh, you know, now some people, you know, claimed that they were good, but I, I just don't, I don't believe that. Uh, but that's okay. I think, I think a big part of this process is, you know, being the person that knows that, uh, you know, your shit can stink and, and, and understand that you have to find ways to, to just push yourself and say, okay, these are the mistakes we made. How do we get better on the next one? Okay. Those, okay. Now we made those new mistakes. Wow. Didn't even know we could, we could mess that up the way we did. Now let's, let's fix that. And, you know, try and there's that, uh, it almost sounds like a cliche, but, uh, find your voice, you know? And, and I was, I was definitely trying to find my voice. Um, and, and then the whole time we were writing, you know, we were writing along the side and continuing to develop bigger ideas and, uh, yeah. And, and then finally got an opportunity in 2016 to make our first, uh, our first feature. And that was camera obscura. Nice. So how did the opportunity for camera obscura come about? Were you guys pitching an active screenplay? Were you able to to get the cash together from private investors? I mean, how did the how did the movie happen? Yeah, so I mean, it took years. Uh, literally, I think it took like five or six years to get that movie made. And uh, at first, we were raising all the money privately. We had, you know, and that was just knocking on doors, asking anyone and everyone that we could find. And we had raised uh, a little bit of money. And then I partnered with a producer named Andrew Vandenhouten. Uh, and he, he knew a few folks. He had produced um, The Woman and he had produced, you know, a couple other movies, Our Ultra Leaders Die. So I knew, you know, I knew that he knew some folks that we didn't. And so he helped kind of connect a few dots for us as well. Um, but, you know, it was, this was a hustle. I mean, that movie was, was a hustle. And, uh, and then I want to say, God, I, we had the money. We had, we had commitments from co-productions, other companies that were willing to say, we'll put up half the money if you raise half. And we were trying a lot of those kind of deals. Um, or if you could cast this kind of actor, you could get this much money. So we, we went through every, down every, every rabbit hole you could possibly think of. And then eventually there was uh, Chiller Films, who was uh, their subsidiary of, of NBC Universal. And that station, which is now defunct, but um, they were kind of the new Fearnet, which also went defunct. <laughs> um, so this is like prior to Shutter and all that, like really having that presence and doing it right. Because nobody, I don't think anybody really did it right until Shutter. Although Fearnet was close, um, yeah. And uh, and the people though at, you know, at Universal and all that were great, but there just wasn't a lot of like push behind the brand. And uh, but they they uh, you know they had a film I believe that fell through, and then they had a time slot and they were like, look, we need to have a movie released for this quarter. 
we wanted to check these boxes. Uh, they liked that we had a little bit of a haunted camera aspect. And, uh, you know, I, I got to pitch them. And then they said no. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then uh, you know, we followed up in an email. And then I, I said, look, can I just have a phone call with whoever's trying to decide this? I know you have to pick a movie now. I know you like the concepts. Like, let's talk about this. And can I just have a phone call? And then I got on that phone call and, uh, you know, fled my case. And they, they, gave us the, they gave us the movie. So they funded the whole thing. Wow. Oh, dude, that's a huge lesson there to just don't take no for an answer. As cliche as it sounds. But not just not take no. Propose another option and say, look, I'd like to talk to whoever is making the decision here. And then pleading your case that. And, I mean, that's awesome. I feel like that's a huge insight. Yeah, I mean, there were some things they wanted us to tweak in the script, but this is my first feature. I'm like, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to, to take those chances because you're going to take a chance on me. So tell me what I need to do to do that. And you have to compromise. I mean, filmmaking is about compromise. So I think especially early on, if you're so caught on, this is my art and I can't let go of my art, well, then your art will not be seen by the rest of the world. <laughs> and then you have to be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, that whole auteur theory, I think, is a real shot in the foot for a lot of would-be directors who just won't take any notes from anybody, and it's their way or their highway, and they have their very precious, specific vision of their movie. And I respect that. Don't get me wrong. Paul Thomas Anderson is my filmmaking idol. So I respect, I respect that level of filmmaking. I respect that level of craft. But it's a business, and you don't have that authority yet. You don't have that ability to, to do those things yet. So you have, to, you have to be willing to kind of roll with some of those punches. And if you are, and they see that you're willing to do that, they'll give you more leeway later. So That's interesting. The fact that they'll give, they'll give you more leeway later. If you're a, a little bit more agreeable up front, it sounds like the producers, it's, it's refreshing for them, so to speak. Yeah, and look, Keep in mind, there's so many movies that never get made, like even even funded films, like movies where there's money, you know, being spent and those movies never get fully made because uh, first time directors do not understand the action. I mean, they've made a, they made short films like, OK, I did this for three days. Yeah, I could do that for 30. Sure. <laughs> and and it, you think you can. And I thought that, too. And then it, it, it brings you down. And yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's really, it becomes a, a trying process. The pressure's on in ways that you probably haven't, hadn't imagined. And I was fortunate that I was older to make, to make my first feature because I think if I was in my, you know, early 20s, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of amazingly talented early 20s directors that are doing this. I just personally could not do it. Mm -hmm. And so I had that maturity. I had, I had managed, you know, large, larger operations and, you know, tech and stuff with like 100 plus people. So I knew how to, to talk to people differently. I knew how to motivate. I knew how to drive people toward a deadline. And that, that kind of helped me stay grounded. But, but, I mean, there's so many movies that just never get made or never get finished because those pressures hit. So it's hard to, to trust these first-time directors unless they really have an experienced crew around them and you, you have these facets. So you, need to, you just have to take all that in mind, you know, as, as, as firm as you are in your beliefs of what it is you can do. It's not just about what you believe you can do. You have to convey that to someone else and have the ability to articulate why your situation is different and why your team can deliver this because that's what it is. So when you deliver a movie, then things start to change. You know, you have proven you can do that. You've proven you can work in that system. And then, you know, they start to, you know, and again, I haven't, I haven't made another movie with Universal, but 
those folks used to work at Chiller, a lot of them are still there. And we've talked a lot, you know, we've, uh, we've almost had a couple projects go and, and we'll continue having those discussions. So, and that's credit to them believing in me and, and delivering a film to them. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's 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 definitely something huge about the idea of doing your first movie a, when you're a little little bit older. I feel like a lot of people just are devastated that they didn't get their first movie made when they were 30 years old. But the idea of approaching your first movie when you're a little bit more mature, and in your case, having had sort of, uh, I mean, having been in the in the video game industry and being in an office environment, I'm sure that that taught you a lot of leadership skills that really enabled you as a director. But I, I feel like that that's a big concept that a lot of people don't talk about enough is, is the idea of doing a movie like a, you don't have to do it all before you're 30 years old, you know, and in fact, being a little bit more mature helps you lead a team. You know, I, I feel like that that's, that's a huge concept. I, I completely agree. I tell film students this all the time. You know, you, you hear the stories and you see, you know, Steven Spielberg, who was making Jaws at ages that scare me. And I get it. 26. I, yeah. I mean, I get it. I understand. And, you know, when he had his, you know, multimillion dollar deal, he was doing dual, you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about what he was able to do. And that's amazing. But that's because he's Steven Spielberg. Right. <laughs> you know, so there, there's a difference there. And, and I think that we just have to, you know, be cognizant of, where are we at in our lives? Like, think about just what, what level of maturity, you know, you were at 18 versus 23 versus 28 versus 33 in each of those spans. And, and we talk with people all the time that they're like, oh, I've got the future. I have to get it made now. And I, I appreciate that hustle. I appreciate that passion. But if that script's not perfect, if it's not exactly the way it has to be, like, you, could, you need to sit on it. You need to wait and, and take the time to refine that because writing a script is free. That's your time. Your time is free. You don't have to spend money on that. You can just, you know, find an hour a day if you need to, whatever, whatever you have to do in between multiple jobs, however you're making your hustle work. But you better be refining that script. You better be, you know, talking to people and listening and trying to find ways to make it better and reflecting on what's happening in society and saying, wow, is there a way that I can talk about this within our film? Is there a way that I can be more progressive, inclusive, you know, now that I'm learning things, seeing things, and just putting all of this into play in how you can you can make that the best version of that movie it can possibly be. Yeah. And another thing that you touched on which I thought was really interesting, it sounds like when you were when you were pitching Camera Obscura, you were not just pitching yourself, but you were pitching the your overall cast and crew and their experience as well, leveraging the fact that you were surrounding yourself with people who knew how to get movies made. I mean, was that is that the case? Was that the case? Uh a little bit. I mean, we ended up having to shoot the movie in Louisiana, so I had to hire a number of crew. That I, I'm, I live in Austin, Texas, so I, I couldn't hire all my regular people, which actually was frustrating. But I did at the time, though. I did pitch that, <laughs> so I did talk about how, look, I know how to run a team. I know how to to, to manage this. I've managed million dollar budgets before, so I, I'm not nervous, you know, about having this money in the bank account to to get it going. I'm not nervous about that. So, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's, you do have to have those right people because even if you have everything, I mean, The Pale Door in particular, you know, that movie, there's absolutely no way we would have had, no matter what I had done, no matter all the effort and time that I put in, that I had I not had a good team, that movie would not have been finished. Mm -hmm. There's just absolutely no way. Yeah. Well, speaking of The Pale Door, how did, uh, what was, 
What was the original inception of that movie? I mean, it was so much fun to see a like I, I I love western horror. I mean, there's not nearly enough of them, but I loved Bone Tomahawk, and this felt like it was in a pretty similar universe as Bone Tomahawk. But uh, it also feels like we're in kind of this season of the witch where. Like back in the day when vampires and werewolves and zombies were huge and everybody had their own different mythology for where for them. It feels like that's happening now with witches now with the wretched and with the witch and with Hagazusa. I mean, it feels like now is when witches are, are starting to come to the forefront and they're remaking Royal Dolls, the witches. But and it seems like a lot of filmmakers are putting they're coming up with their own mythologies, none of which are consistent, which I think is, is really exciting. You know, there's no hard, fast stake through the heart or silver bullet kind of rules with witches. So how I mean, first of all, how did the, the concept of wanting to integrate witches? into a Western come about? Yeah, I love that question because the mythology and the rules of the witches that we had, I spent far too much time diving <laughs> into. It was so much fun for me to read all of the lore, all of the ideas, and then think of ways that we could you know, change that a little bit and think of ways that we could have, have a, different, a different aspect of it. And so, but we borrowed from you know, we, we, our story actually goes into even Salem and talking about the persecution that happened there and how and what led to this belief of witches that I'm, I'm even commenting on the idea that and positing that these people who condemned folks thinking they were witches actually led to real witches coming up as a revolt of them. <laughs> so that's part of, part of our lore that we created um, and that hate brings hate and, uh, you know, violence begets violence. And I think that was something that we, we explored. But, but the origins of this uh, actually tie back to the same people that funded uh, Camera Obscura. They, the witch, had done really well with A24. And they said, hey, Aaron, do you got a witch movie? You want to make a witch movie? And I was like, <laughs> I was like all right, cool. Let me, uh, yeah, I can, I, 100%, I can come up with a witch movie for you. So I uh, threw together a pitch and I came up. We had this idea of a weird Western back in the day that was just a group of cowboys that go to a, an abandoned ghost town and there's some force there and they were dying. They were getting kind of picked off one by one. And I always, I love that, the idea of a horror Western. It's like, wait a second, why don't we just make this a witch story? And they go to this ghost town and there ends up being a brothel and it's a coven of witches and they start getting picked off one by one. And once we, we kind of like merged those two ideas together, we had a, a pretty interesting one pager of a pitch. And uh, I, I pitched it and they had... They were like, no, no, no. What, 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 the, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, we just said witches. Where are these cowboys? What's going on? Western. That doesn't even make sense. And uh, I'm like, okay. Well, I don't know what witches make sense. I'm, I'm just coming up with, you know, what this was. And so we sat on it for a long time after that. And then I, I had a, a screenwriting panel with Joe Lansdale that I was just completely honored to be a part of and be on. And in that panel, I told that story. And then Joe's and his son, Keith, who's also an amazing writer, um, and ended up being a writer on the pale door spoilers. Um, mm -hmm. I told that story and they were, they were all so excited about it. Like, Oh, that sounds really cool. This is fun. Like you should, you should really, you should really make that. And we were developing another movie, um, a body horror sci-fi film at the time. And, uh, and, you know, so we just, I thought about it, went to dinner with them that night and came back and I talked again to my writing partner, Cameron and to Alex um, and Sean. So we were partners at paper street. And I just said, let's make this movie. Like, I think this is cool. Let's just go for it. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of the stuff out there. The witch stuff that's coming out, out now feels a little derivative. Like let's do our own unique version of this. And, um, 
you know, so we, we went for it. And I had another script separate from that as well. And this is what happens all the time is we have so many ideas and so many scripts we're constantly writing. And then one of those doesn't really go the direction we want, but there was a hook about it that we really liked. So we wrote this one that we called The Dark Day, which was based on a real event that happened in like the 1400s or so. I might have the years a little off, but um, and where the whole sky went black. And we decided to tie that into the Salem Witch Trials and that, you know, Cotton Mather, who was a real person who wrote the book on witches um, and how to find them in Salem. It's kind of a vile individual, to be honest. And, uh, you know, it's, it's it, and just honestly, like that period in history is so dark and so disturbing. And I don't think enough people think about it because they just, you know, they hear Salem Witch Trials and there's shows like Salem and stuff. And you don't, I don't think you really like equate like what's, what's actually going on there. But, um, but it was awful. And this man, you know, he, I, I read a, a story and I don't know if it's completely true, but I, I read this and it was about a woman who was pregnant and fled from Salem and they found her and burned her. Now, oh my granted, God. Most people at that time were actually not burned. They were stoned or hanged. But that, but that particular story just was so revolting and disgusting. I mean, even saying it now, just kind of, uh, you know, it just elicits this, this like natural response from yeah, anyone. It's horrific. Human. And so to know that that was there and I was like, well, what if, what if that led to this kind of, you know, that created the first witches. Like, what if that event created the first witches? So we we just started, you know, kind of playing with that and took that idea from that other movie, this other weird cowboy, you know, dark Western that we had, and then, you know, integrated this this witch idea that we had just written and, uh, you know, created the pale door. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how we do, like, when you keep writing scripts, there's something about, even if the script as a whole doesn't work, you can kind of composite the things that worked about scripts that largely don't work, but have that one little glimmer of magic. You can take those things and you can composite them together into brand new scripts, which, I mean, I feel like that's a testament to the importance of just to keep on writing, just to never, not, if you're a writer, you know, to never not be writing, so to speak. Do you have any sort of a, um, either like a Stephen King style daily minimum amount of words that you try to reach every day or so? I mean, what's your writing process like? I write an hour a day, every day, every single day, no matter what happens. And that hour I, I plan out even now, the only time that the only, the only times I would say that was the exception was when I was actually on set and directing um, or producing. Um, but other than that, I write an hour every day. Now, writing to me is not always physically typing on the page. I sometimes will be, I, I do a lot of writing in the car where I use the voice recorder on my phone and for some reason, just driving around and having some like elemental, you know, kind of music on in the background uh, just uh, helps clear my head. So I'll just pop up in the sunroof and roll the windows down and just kind of, you know, drive around and think about these characters and think about the world they're in and think about these struggles. And that's what gets me through, quote unquote, writer's block, even though I don't completely believe in writer's block. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, so I do that and I record it on my phone and then I come back and I, it gets transcribed into, you know, like a Word document. And that's great. And I, you know, have that basically is written and I make sure that I put at least an hour of that every day. Um, so it's, but that's, that's something that I've, I've probably done now for good, at least three years. I'd say I've, I've, I've kept to that pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty standard. So, but it's not about pages. It's, you know, I mean, you could be in the shower and writing in my, in my opinion, you just have to be, 
in the mindset and thinking about your script and like, and then letting that, whatever that moment is that you're in, let that click and say, Oh, that's the way to unlock this character. Like, Oh, that's, that's an opportunity for them. Or, Oh, that's a scene. You know, I read a lot of the news and all that. And I'll look at, you know, real, real events and things that have happened. And I was like, Whoa, that's a scene in a movie. Now I might not know what movie that is at that moment, but I'll put it, we have a Google drive and we'll just put like these ideas on our Google drive and on our Trello Trello boards of, of different projects. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like anybody, if they have some, anything, no matter where they get it from, they can just post it on that board and say, this is interesting, you know, and it could just be two words. You know, I think one time it was, it was prison horror. And I was like, prison. Horror? Ooh. I was like, that's interesting. Like, I guess, yeah, you're in a, you're in a jail cell. There's no cell phone service. That eliminates one problem. You're dealing with people who, you know, some who are criminals, some maybe who are not and, and how they're having to, to handle this. And like, what if some level force or something was in the prison and all of a sudden you're, you have an idea, you know, and, and you start to develop that. So, you know, there's all these different, these different facets that, you know, we, we go to. So if I ever have, if I'm struggling with a particular moment or character or what, like I would say others would call writer's block, I just shift to another idea at that time and just, Oh yeah, that's interesting. I have ideas about that and let my brain kind of go. And, and honestly, many times I come back to that problem that I had previously and it's no longer a problem. Mm. Yeah. I always think it's fascinating how, or I'm always really curious about how, directors collect ideas because I feel like as a director, you're never kind of not directing. In other words, your mind is always on and it's always absorbing and seeing things through the eye of a director. So you could be just passively watching a movie, but that could be prompting all sorts of ideas. And they're not like fully formed ideas, but just one little piece of music or one little, you know, an image. And you just know that there's something there, but it's not fully formed enough for it to be a quote unquote idea. So I'm always curious about like capture systems like how directors capture their own ideas some people have like photo books um i put a ton of stuff in evernote but um but also just you know clip stuff in different places but yeah it's interesting that you have a shared google doc that you and your team can all add to so that i mean that's got to be fascinating to see what these other people are coming up with as well yeah because there's you know all these ideas i mean when when i'm on set i welcome people bringing ideas and stuff as well because you never know where it's going to come from and what could maybe that idea isn't exactly it, but it could inspire the next idea yeah. Right? Yeah. and how that could work. So, and, and let me also say, if you're a director and you're watching movies and you're not taking in opportunities or pausing those movies to talk about, oh, wait, this inspires me or this is something I should do or this is a way to look at this, I think you're directing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> because that is our film school right now. That is, those are your master classes. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so constantly, you know, we looked at, we had a big train robbery that we had to do on the pale door. And I was like, okay, well, let's watch train robbery scenes. You know, let's watch all of them. Let's see how they do it. And the one that we really, really gravitated toward was uh, the assassination of Jesse James and that train robbery. And it was a, and it was also a train robbery at night, which we had to do. So it was perfect. So we looked at that and looked at ways of, you know, what did, what did Roger Deakins do? He clearly knew what he was doing. So, you know, learn from these people. And, but, but I, it's interesting to say Evernote. I actually, so I actually keep that on my phone as well. And I constantly, these are more so just for me, but uh, I will, I'll be watching a movie or anything and I'll just pause it, you know, especially in my home, I'll just pause it and, and say, whoa, what was this? What just happened here? Like, look at what happened. Like, think about this. I'll rewatch the scene. Look at the way it was blocked. Look at the way the music comes in or comes out. Um, you know, the way that, uh, you know, wow, they, they, they did this all in one take for this reason. Or why did they, why did they do that? 
And if I ever feel like something is different, I want to stop and, and understand why those directors are doing those moments. And then the other thing that I do all the time is I will, I'll pull up the full script and I'll read the script as I have the movie on in the background. Oh, that's interesting. And, and it helps a lot. It just helps you see, because, you know, they always say there's the movie you write, the movie you shoot and the movie you make. Right. And that journey, I mean, these movies change a lot. Mm-hmm. And there are so many little things that happen, and especially in indie filmmaking. Like in any filmmaking, your script, that's why your script has to be better than any other script. If it's a $5 million, $10 million script, those don't have to be nearly as good <laughs> as yours because they can go back and reshoot something. They can go back and they can recast even. Right. They, can, they, can, they can do all these things that you can't do. You get one shot. You are on the day at that moment. And if you have not thought through the perfect, the absolute best way to make that happen on that day, when those things go wrong and Murphy law, Murphy's law hits you, you're not, your, your adjustment level is going to go down you know, exponentially and the movie's going to really suffer. So that's what you know, the best indie films are these real weird miracles where it's like, wow, I can't believe we didn't run into these problems. You know? and, right. uh, but I don't know what that's like because I haven't had that happen yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm jumping all over the place. But uh, with The Pale Door, you had a huge cast and it was a period piece. And from what I understand, it, it was a relatively low budget movie. But it seems like you were able to maximize the hell out of that budget because typically period pieces are, are a lot more expensive and the cast was enormous but was there um were there any kind of tips for achieving because the world was very immersive you know i totally felt like i was there it didn't it did I, I didn't come out of it for a second you know um were there any things that you paid really close attention to when it came to establishing the world and the time period yeah look i think that's a great question because we were told we were crazy to try to make this movie. And, uh, but, but part of it too was trusting the right people that we had on board. And I think, so for example, on this one, I went a long time trying to find the right costume designer. And, and that was really important to me. And Jillian Bundrick, who's amazing. I mean, truly, I think she's one of the best in the country. And I was really lucky to find her and she had ties to Oklahoma. So it worked out great. And, but we, we, had to, we had to really focus on getting the little things right so that, you know, you could, you could build around those. So, so one was costumes because that just looks cheap. Like you can tell right off the bat if the costumes are bad. So we wanted to have authentic costumes. But then you also have to kind of, you need to write to, to what availability you have. So I scouted throughout the United States. I mean, I went to probably six, seven different states, uh, no kidding, over a good six month period of time looking for ghost towns. And I personally would go online, I'd call the film commission, I'd ask what they had, I would drive out there, do day trips from Austin, um, and you know, scout them out. And you know, because the pictures would never do them justice, you couldn't really tell. And then finally, I found a couple that were really good, um, but then I found this one in Guthrie, Oklahoma, it's about an hour north of Oklahoma City. And it was, it was a very, uh, the, the town was one big town center. It was just one circle. And it was very contained. And then one of the things that also was there was they used this town for destination weddings. So people go there to do these like old style Western weddings. And stuff. Okay. But what that means though, is that they have housing that's there. So right next to it are all these homes that you can live in. Oh, perfect. And they're all connected. So our entire crew lived on set. Oh, holy shit. That's so, cool. So when you rented this place, you were able to, to get that. So that cut down on housing costs that we had by using it. It also was surrounded by about 20 acres of woods in all directions. 
So it's like, okay, well, let's, and we had other scenes that we had to, we had to leave that, but that move, you know, 80% of the movie is, is all contained there. We, we added one kind of saloon scene, you know, at the beginning, but other than that, and, and um, well, and then the cold open as well. But, uh, but it was still very centric to like finding this right town. So once we found that, we rewrote the script to the strengths of that location. And I think for any filmmaking, you have to look at that. So much of your budget is contingent on those locations. So, you know, this was something that we had to learn the hard way in Camera Obscura, where we couldn't stretch the dollar as much as we should have because we had 24 locations on that movie. And that was right. not smart. That was not smart of me to do. And so, you know, going back, I, I completely, you know, rewrote that concept for how we would approach this for The Pale Door. So, you know, building around those strengths, I think, is, is unbelievably key. And then you have to come up with strategic ways. Like, we also had animals. We had stunts. We had... So how you schedule this, how you handle all of this, you have to think about those. So the horses, horses are really expensive. <laughs> and, you know, so we had to kind of get rid of the horses. You know, I won't say how, but we had to get rid of the horses at an early point. So we did that. We came up with a concept for how to do that. We had stunts. Well, so let's contain all of our stunts in one week of shooting. If it's a stunt, it has to be done in that week. So we worked the schedule for all this. And look, that affected some actors that weren't necessarily available and they could only come. So we had to, you know, the, the jigsaw puzzle of this schedule of making this movie happen was insane. But, uh, but if, you're, if you're willing to do the hard work to say, okay, well, we can only afford one weekly for our stunt coordinator. We can only afford this many stunt adjustments, as they call them, which are like extra pay for a big stunt. Like we throw people off a balcony to break a table and fall downstairs and stuff like that. So when you're doing those things, like you have to pay little premiums. So when you're budgeting and you're looking at how to stretch those dollars, you have to be really creative about how those work. And then with your actors, I think it's really important to also, you know, you're, when you're thinking about how to schedule those, it's like, can I shoot these people out in shorter periods of time? Do I need them for all four weeks of the shoot? Is there a way that I can shoot them in one week? And, and trying to approach those. And I know everybody seems to think that, but I think they quickly look at this like, oh, well, this person's, this person's on page one and they're on page 90. I don't really know how we're going to make this work. And, and that's, that's just a defeatist attitude. Like you have to be willing to challenge yourself in all of these creative ways. And yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think we did a lot for our budget. And you know, and again, we were told we were crazy and, uh, but you know, we made it. So yeah. I'm really, really proud of that. Yeah. Well, as far as working out those equations, when it comes to figuring out who you had to mo in, in the most budgetarily resourceful way, schedule things out, did that mostly fall on you or was that an AD or was that somebody else on the crew who helped? I mean, wh who's your kind of, what team or what team members help you do that the best? So, I mean, typically this is the AD. Uh, we had an unfortunate situation where our initial AD got really sick in Oklahoma. And uh, so we had, to, we had to go a different direction. So I actually did that schedule myself. I taught myself. But again, this is part of, to me, what indie filmmaking is, is you can't have excuses, right? So right. this was unfortunate. This person got really sick and she was super sick. And, and we felt really bad about it. Oh, we didn't know what to do at that time. So... I, I had to give answers to actors to know whether or not they could come and work this day or this day. We had to finalize that schedule. Otherwise, everything was waiting on that. So I said, well, I can't wait to do this. I, I even reached out to another AD to help, and then his laptop got stolen the weekend he was coming to help Oh, me. Jesus. <laughs> so it was just, it was like, okay, okay, all right, I get it, I get it. Well, then, 
I guess I'm doing this. And I said, all right, everyone, clear my schedule. I am going to stay here until I figure this out. I taught myself the software that night, and I literally pulled an all-nighter. I, I stayed up for probably about 30, 36, 38 hours and just finished it. And then I fell asleep, and I said, everybody poke holes in this. And I woke up. There was one little change, and then we had our schedule. Boom. But, but it, was, it was hard. <laughs> I mean, that was hard. And I don't recommend that at all. Yeah. But it was, it was just a situation where I have to do this right now. Like, I have to do it. So yeah. you, you, can't, you can't make those excuses because, again, there's, we couldn't afford to push extra days. We couldn't afford – we couldn't change any of these things. We had to have that schedule. So, you know, you gotta, sometimes you just have to put some boots on and figure it out, whatever yeah. that means. Yeah. What scheduling program do you use, by the way? So, oh, goodness. I can't even remember the name of what this was because <laughs> I, I literally learned it that night. I right. did it, submitted it. Then we had an AD after that. And then you were and done. And I was done. I mean, now don't get me wrong. As a director, you're always talking to your first AD and you're having these discussions about, hey, so tomorrow I kind of feel like we shouldn't do this. Um, or can we, can we move this to this day and move this in, you know, for, for varying reasons. And I think you should always be having those discussions with your AD and being very candid about how that works. And once we brought in uh, Dave Halls, who's an AD I'd work with on, on Camera Obscura, uh, he trusted me and I trusted him. So we kind of knew how that dynamic needed to work. And, you know, he, he really just kind of came in. He's like, Aaron, I like the schedule. I like what's going on. I'll keep the crew in order. If you want to change something, you let me know. If I see something, I'll let you know. And we would have those discussions. But, you know, it's, I think a lot of directors think that ADs are these contentious positions. They're not. They're, they're collaborative. And you need to be somebody who's being collaborative with them because they're trying to keep you on budget and on time. And I can say, look, we had category five tornadoes. Um, literally, it was the, it was the, in 100 years, the worst tornado season that Oklahoma ever had. And we were right on their, on their path um, right before shooting. And we had flooding. We had hail. We were shut down for lightning multiple times. My God. Storms. And I lost almost an entire day, uh, one, well, one evening overnight um, due, to, due to thunderstorms and lightning. Um, even in one of our most emotional scenes, we had the, the, uh, the generator got, got struck by lightning and had to go Holy back. Holy so, I mean, shit. It was, it, was a, uh, it was an ordeal, but we also made every day. So even when that happened, when those things happened, we had a day that, okay, well, this day got cut short. Now I've got to spread this out over the next three days. I sat down with my AD and I said, okay, here's what I have to do. I had plans for shots that were going to be on dolly track and slow moving. And I was like, we can't do that now. In order for us to make these days and stay on budget, Andrew Baird, my DP, I was like, I need you to put this on the rig and we're going to have to go, you know, like smooth handheld, not like jumpy handheld, but like smoother handheld. And a ton of the movie is, is freeform now just because we had to, we had no choice. And that was because we had to shoot faster. So you just have to have those things in the back, you know, in the back of your head at all times. And then I, I keep this little kind of mini me notebook in my back pocket and I write down like my goals for those scenes for the days. And I say, look, no matter what happens in the scene, this one moment is what I have to get perfect. The rest of this, we can float, we can move, we can get in and out. Don't spend too much time on it, Aaron. Just, just get, get the coverage you need and make sure this is going to cut. But make sure this moment works. And then communicate that to your AD and say, hey, we're going to spend more time on this. And I promise you we're going to go a lot faster on this and this. And if you're on the same page about that, then they're not freaking out because they're like, hey, you got to go, got to go. They know it's like, nope, sorry, this is an emotional moment. We're going to get what we need. And then we can run and gun, 
you know, after this. And you just, you just kind of have to be adjusting and balancing and, and, uh, you know, <laughs> but, but, oh my God, man, it was, it was an unbelievable ordeal. An yeah. Unbelievable ordeal well, dealing with all the elements, the quite literal elements that you were dealing with and the, the just endless barrage of Murphy's Law, how were you able to keep your cast and crew's morale high? Because I'm sure there were some days that were really discouraging. And as the director, you, to a certain extent, just really have to keep yourself together emotionally while also motivating a cast and crew through these really, really difficult circumstances. What were some of the keys to keeping the morale up? So this, I think this ties back into the fact that I started later in life in that, you know, I think I, I had, I had reached a level of maturity to where I've had, I've had some very unfortunate things happen to me in my life and my family and dealing with those and knowing what those emotional, you know, downs were and what those lows would be about. I knew that I had gotten through that so I can get through anything. So, you know, I was able to always keep myself centered. I take a lot of pride and then I'm never too high and I'm never too low on set. I'm never gonna yell, you're gonna understand me, I'm gonna talk to you, you're gonna have eye contact, we're gonna listen. I go around, I shake everybody's hand in the morning and it's a, I, I empathize with these individuals and I try to understand their situation. Um, the night that the generator blew, uh, Pat Healy was, uh, he was in makeup for, God, I don't even know how many hours, where his full body makeup basically. And, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't see because of the makeup. So, and then the generator blew and then we're waiting for more hours. And he's sitting there in the chair and he's like, he's like, Aaron, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to kill you. I can't do this. And, uh, and I just, I just started joking with him, you know, and I started talking to him about different stuff and, uh, you know, just different things and just, just kind of, it was almost like holding his hand for a bit. And then I talked to, um, the makeup person and I was like, Hey, like, let's, you know, he likes this music. Let's get him these things. Let's, uh, let's find ways to, to keep this as comfortable as possible. Um, but look, emotions are going to run high on every, every set. We definitely had a couple nights that were tough, that were really, really tough. But the one thing I could always do is I knew that, that I would be able to keep my cool. I would go over to them and, and listen and talk. And if we had to take a moment right then, as fast as we were going and say, everybody stop for a moment and say, how are you doing? What do you need? Is this feeling okay? Like, let's, let's talk about this. And, you know, here's what do you, what's going through? Like, or do you want to talk about something else? Let's take five minutes, you know, and five minutes on a film set can sound scary, especially ones that move as fast as, as we were moving, but you have to be able to do that sometimes. Yeah. And, and I think that comes with experience of knowing when you can take those breaks, mm -hmm. when you can take those moments. Uh, but then to center myself, I also have, I mean, driving in every morning, I have a very, very cheesy director playlist that gets me way too pumped up. Oh, you got to um, share it on, what is it, on Spotify? Oh, God, it is on Spotify. It's What's so on it? You got to share it. Oh, my God. I mean, there might be Katy Perry on it. There might be uh, <laughs> just some silly stuff. Firework? LMFA. It's firework, isn't um, it? Yeah, yeah, yes, Firework is absolutely on it. How do feel? Um, like? <laughs> uh, you know, just... Just, um, but it's just, it's things that make me smile or, or I'm just laughing at cause they're, they're silly. Um, and then um, there's even that stupid Eminem song, you know, I can't remember the name of it right now. The one from but, the eight mile, you better lose yourself in the music. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> can't, a hell of can't a pump help up it. Song. I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's so, you know, I have good taste in music. I do promise, but, but this is, <laughs> but I don't know what it is. It's just like, these things make me happy and they right. get me pumped up. So it's kind of like a workout song, you know? So it's my workout kind of a uh, uh, playlist. And I do that as, as I'm there in the morning, but then I also, I tell my team, I'm like, look, every now and then uh, I'm going to go to my car 
because I don't have, you know, I don't have a trailer. I don't have anything like that on the shoots that I do. So I just, I go to my car, I will play more calming music. I'll play like, I don't know, the national or something, or just anything that's just more relaxing um, or like trail the dead, something like that ambient. And, and then I just, I think about like, okay, what scene is coming up? What do I need to do? And I take maybe two minutes, turn the air on super high, cool down for a second, just breathe. It's almost like meditation. And then I come back out and I am completely calm and I'm ready to go. And you just, I have to do that. I had to do that every day, yeah. every day at least once a day, yeah. um, sometimes it, multiple times. It feels like it's important to recharge as a director. I mean, Martin Scorsese practices transcendental meditation and he says without it, he doesn't know how he would be able to do what he does. You know, he does the first thing. And then I think in like the middle of the day, he'll do it probably around like four or five o'clock. And he said that it just gives him that recharge that you need to deal with all of the things that are simultaneously happening, you know, and it, it sounds like it's important for directors to be able to have that something where they can just recharge, check in with themselves and then, you know, jump back out there. Yeah. If you don't know what centers yourself and I'm not talking about anything, you know, spiritual or whatever, whatever each person wants to do. I just mean, if you are saying I'm upset right now, I'm freaking out, I'm scared, I'm pissed, whatever it is, whatever that emotion is, if you don't know how you can regroup and recenter yourself to calm down and get back to, to, you know, not making these emotional decisions and become a, a rational person again, if you don't know how to do that, you're not going to survive as a director. So you, you've got to figure that out, whatever that is. So, you know, if you're listening and you want to be a director, first off, you don't want to be a director. You are a director if you're directing anything. You're a director, number one. But um, as a director, just, you know, you get upset, you get stressed and just say, okay, how am I calming myself down? And then take note of that and then practice ways to continue doing that. And whatever method that is for you. And if you need to listen to Katy Perry's firework and that's going to do it, <laughs> then let that be your thing, right? That does it for so, me. Yeah, I mean, you know, to each their own, but just figure out what that is. And because if you lose your cool on set, you lose your crew. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, it's, I, I say it all the time, like lose your cool, lose your crew. And it's, you just have to be the one because they're all coming to you with a thousand questions and you have to be the one who's got it all figured out. And when, man, shit is hitting the fan and you don't know how you're going to adjust. And even in your head, you're like, I don't know how we're going to do this. You have to be confident. You have to be the person, you know, somebody comes up to you with three green shirts and you're like, I wanted a green shirt and there's three shades of green. And you're like, I don't give a damn which of those three shirts it is, but it doesn't, but your answer has to be that one. And you point at one with conviction and that person then feels like, thank you. Yes, I did what he wanted. I got, I got what was there. And you, you go on, you just have to, everything has to do with conviction, whether it's not even completely there or not. You just <laughs> have to speak with this, you know, onus of, of like, Hey, yes, this is what we're doing. I got you. It's under control. I got you. And, and Devin, uh, Devin Drew was our lead. You know, he constantly commented on how as one of the calmer directors he's worked with. And I, of all the compliments that we had, that's one that meant the most to me because I worked so, so hard in doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it feels like that's, that's a huge part of directing is, is having that calm sensibility because then you just, you can direct better because you have a calm head, you are not irrational and you can see the opportunity, the cinematic opportunities that are right in front of you. And, and producers too. Yeah, yeah. Same way. yeah. And I feel like we don't hear enough directors talking about the importance of ha having, even if it takes 
two minutes, but having some sort of mechanism to calm or center themselves in the middle of it. Because if you do get too irrational on set, I mean, that's certain bad things can happen for sure. But no, I think that I feel like that's a huge piece of advice. Well, I think it's because people are still like, you know, dealing with this old idea of what a director is supposed to be. And it's like some dude with a megaphone, you know, or yelling or they see they've seen images, you know, and they've seen videos of, of some things that happen on sets. And those are just archaic. They're not the way that they have to be. Yeah. You know, and and look, I understand. I understand how stressful it can be. I understand that people can still lose their cool and as long as you're able to kind of come back from it. But uh, but you don't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be this uh, totalitarian, you know, kind of, kind of way of doing things. So, yeah. Uh, another thing that I, I thought was, uh, was very striking about Pale Door was their dialogue. Like the way that they spoke felt very, I mean, it wasn't incomprehensible at all, but it felt like it was very much its own dialogue. And it almost felt like it was grounded in the ways that people must have spoken back then, but still was modern enough, you know, for comprehension. It kind of reminded me of the dialogue in um, Deadwood in a way. So I'm curious how you approached the dialogue. Yeah, no, that's, um, I'm glad you picked up on that because we spent a lot of time. I mean, look, if you, if you research what everybody would have said in that time, it sounds ridiculous. Like it just <laughs> does not translate well. So right. there's a level of authenticity that you need to have while still modernizing this. And even the way we shot it, you know, we didn't want to do everything in split diopters and everything in these, you know, zoom lenses and stuff. I mean, I think that that's what's great. Like I love all peck and paw Westerns and I love the way that Sergio Leone and all, all how that was done. But some aspects of that don't translate as well into modern Westerns. So we looked a lot, again, like at Jesse, Assassin's Jesse James and like the 310 Yuma remake, which I love so much. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, so, so how those, those movies worked, um, Unforgiven. But anyway, as far as the dialogue specifically, you know, so we would write, you know, we weren't good at this. We, were, we did not know how to write Western dialogue. So we first started off with just writing normal dialogue, just like what needs to happen in the scene. And then we kind of like slowly westernized that a little bit. We would add little phrases and then, and then we also, you know, really focused on there were different characters had different layers of this that they would do. So we wanted Jake and Duncan, um, you know, the, the two, the two brothers, they were going to be probably the most modern speaking of everyone, but then, you know, Wiley, Patty Lee's character and uh, Lester, Stan Shaw's character, they would go a little more into this and kind of lean into some of those aspects in other ways. And then Melora Walter's character wouldn't really have it at all because she came from, a diff- she's, you know, spoilers, she's from, you know, 100 years ago, whatever, and all this kind of stuff. So it's a different, different world altogether. Um, so, yeah, that was tough to balance that and to find the right way to, to kind of make that work. But it came with, you know, we got too westerny at one point, and then we had to reel it back. And because some things were like, this is a serious moment, and this sounds like a ridiculous comment. Like, and I can't even, I can't even give a good example right now of what one would be. But there were just times where, whoa, that phrase is funny, and I can't have this scene be funny. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So you had to find a, how to find a balance. Gotcha. And the other thing I wanted to talk about was the design of the witches. I we I feel like we've never seen witches like this before. Where did and clearly there were the references to them being burned at the stake and things like that. But um, where did the conception of the witch design come from? Yeah, so that was that was again something else I spent a lot of time thinking about because I wanted to create this backstory for them, but then also kind of you know still pay homage to how I viewed witches. And you mentioned the World All remake of witches. Like I love that look like Angelica Houston, just 
that is one of the sc- those are the scariest switches. To Scared me. the fucking shit out of me when I was a kid. Oh my god! Yeah, they were they were unbelievable, and they still. I watched it again in prep for this movie, and it's like, oh my god! Like that scene when they're in that uh, that room, and they all start kind of taking off their faces. Like it, it, it's unbelievable. It's so it's hardcore. It's so it terrified me as a kid. Yeah, me too. No, me too, completely. So I wanted I wanted that look with those kind of elongated features of noses and ears and all that. And then, but then as if they were burnt at the stake. Right. So if you ha- so if you look like that, and then, you know, we created this whole lore of kind of tying into Bathory and this idea that if you bathe in the blood of what she called, you know, corrupt men, she could keep her youthful look. So we tied that kind of mythology into this. And, and so, you know, essentially they've all been burnt to the stake. They all look like these witches at this point that, that, you know, we, we understand from like the, like I said, like the, the, the old folklore of witches. And then, but then they can keep their youthful look at the time in which they were burned, at the time in which they were originally called witches incorrectly. When that happens, you know, so, and then that created real witches out of that, um, you know, which again is, we're trying to say something uh, there. But, um, but yeah, so it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Becky Ingram and uh, David Greathouse, who are phenomenal, and they, they worked a lot with, with uh, Robert Kurtzman's team back in the day. And oh, cool. Had, had worked on a bunch of a bunch of big movies and, and I worked with them on camera obscura. So was really excited to kind of dig into this and we created a bunch of different molds and, and it, what was nice too is again, talking about ways of doing things with a budget, those witches took four hours. It's four Whoa. hours of makeup per witch. So, you know, you had to find ways to, okay, how many witches on this day can we have and bring in these extra people, you know, to help with their makeup teams. But then, it was, I had to come up with unique ways. So I created a couple of stunt witches and you know, the, again, this is just indie filmmaking in every way, but <laughs> there's one, there's one person named Jennifer Rader and she plays, she plays an actress in the movie. Then she plays a stunt, witch. she's killed probably seven times in the movie, <laughs> but, but you don't know because we, we change up her makeup slightly. So we'll put a different wig on different eye, you know, different uh, contacts, uh, change up her, her look slightly. And then, and then she's running at you and it looks like a new witch, but we wanted each of them to be different, but just slight variations so that I could just change outfits and turn to the right, shoot one witch. Okay. Now change their outfit. That takes 30 minutes while we're doing another shot, then come back that witch that just got shot and I'll get shot again in another scene. And it looks like there's so many more witches than there really are. So efficient. So, yeah. Again, you can just, you got to think about all this stuff. It's how, yeah. to, it's how to stretch a dollar. Yeah. So how did Joe Lansdale get involved in the project? Uh, that screenwriting panel. When I was on that panel with Joe and I told that story, he was he was excited and I uh, thought it was a cool idea. And, you know, Joe's somebody who's been frustrated with uh, Hollywood, you know, in the industry. He's an East Texas, East Texas dude in every way. And, and just, you know, I was kind of sick of the system and sick of how these people work. And he liked us. We, we went to dinner and we all just kind of got along. Um, and so I, I went back out, you know, drove out to his place, uh, you know, a couple months later and we're like, hey, like, let's we want to make this movie, you know, if you're involved. And I had pitched Joe and Keith both to write on the movie with us. They had just written an episode of Creep Show. Um, they had, you know, they were writing comic books, um, an X-Files comic and a bunch of other things that were really exciting. And, and, and again, Keith is a phenomenal writer. I mean, he, he, he definitely got his father's talent in every way. But Joe, Joe ended up being too busy. He's like, I can't, I can't write on this. I've got all these other deadlines, but Keith can write. So we're like, great, let's take it. And then Joe became our writing consultant and kind of, you know, would, would read drafts and give notes. 
and then an executive producer for us. And then Keith came on as a full writer. So Cameron and I had the story. We did a couple pretty in-depth passes and gave it to Keith. And he rewrote, we're like, look, take it wherever you want to go from there, Keith. Like, give it, give it your best. And then he, he definitely, he changed our entire ending. Our entire ending came from Keith. Wow. Um, yeah, I had aspects of it that were in there that he tied into earlier, which was great. I mean, I had a, a much darker, <laughs> some different ending than what we had, and because uh, that's typically what I do. But I, I love what he did, you know, and, and they, uh, they kind of helped elevate the film. They also helped a little with the dialogue, too, to go back to that question. Oh, because, cool. Yeah, like they know, they understand Western dialect in mm-hmm. a way that I just don't. Yeah. So, and they'd written, written a number of Westerns before. So I think that was a, a big help. But yeah, they're, they're the best. I love Joe and Keith so much. Nice. Well, cool. Um, few like last uh, little rapid fire kind of questions. So was there throughout the course of your directorial journey and becoming a director, was there any kind of pivotal advice that was given to you either from another director or from a peer or friend or anybody that, that really helped. Yeah. I, you know, I don't remember who, well, I will say one of the first moments for me where I really realized that the, the curtain was kind of lifted was uh, Darren Lynn Bowsman was talking with uh, Adam Green and uh, Joe Lynch on their, their movie group podcast. And he was just talking about the horrors that he had had as a director and all the things that had gone wrong and it just, it helped me realize that everybody is, it's not as easy, like people see this finished film and it's like, oh, what happened? And it's so easy just to poke holes and like, oh, why didn't they do that? And you have no idea <laughs> the, the journey that they had to go through just to get to that moment or even how much that decision that maybe that director agrees with you. And it's, but it's like, that was the absolute best we could do at that moment. There's no way we could have done anything different for right. this multitude of reasons. And just kind of realizing that we're all vulnerable, I think helped a lot because I put all these people on these pedestals of, uh, I'm just, I keep making things that are not good enough. Like, what can I do? Comparing myself to everyone and kind of realizing that we were all in this together and that imposter syndrome that I had, they had. And, and so it, that, that's kind of permeated. But then above and beyond that, on a more practical sense was, I had to learn to ask for money <laughs> mm. um, and that is uh, that's troubling. You know, that's an uncomfortable conversation. Like, yeah. You don't like doing that, but if you want to get your movie made, you have to be able to ask for money and you have to be able to sell yourself. So, you know, again, you've got to get in a room, you have to get people excited about what it is you're doing and you have to have the ability to articulate your vision succinctly. Um, and, and if you can't do that, then you're not going to be able to do that on set. Uh, Tarantino famously talked about how uh, before Reservoir Dogs, he was so nervous and like, what the hell am I going to do? And Harvey Keitel came over to him and who helped him get the movie made. And he said, he's like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, what, what, what is happening right now? This is all crazy. And, and, and I'm paraphrasing some paraphrasing, but, uh, but I guess uh, Harvey said something along the lines of, look, you know the movie, you see the movie in your head? And he's like, yeah, of course. Okay, can you talk about that movie in your head? Oh yeah, I can talk about my movie all day. He's like, okay, then just do that. Hmm. And, I was like, oh. and I was like, oh, I can talk about my movie. Yeah, I can do that. And, you know, so, so practice talking about it. Like, go to your friends and say, you know, like, practice a scene. Say, you know, how you would talk to an actor about this. Practice pitching what the whole movie is. All these different aspects. And if somebody's like, I don't get it, or they're confused, then you need to take a moment to think about how you convey that message and how you can be clear and succinct. Because on a set, 
when you are making split second decisions and everybody's looking at you and you have, there's a, there's almost a literal clock counting down for the sun to come up and this entire scene is ruined. You have to be able to make those decisions on the fly and be, yeah. be, you know, confident in yourself and you have to be able to articulate, okay, guys, this is not working. Here's what we're going to do. Everybody stop. Okay. Horace is over here. You over here. We're going to flip the lights, you know, DP, I need you to look at this. We're going to go this direction. And instead I'm going to do this shot and this, we don't, we're going to cut this part of the scene. We're going to go straight from here to here. And you need to be able to edit in your head. Mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of editing when I came out of film school when I was freelance. So when I'm on set, I'm watching the scene and I'm thinking, oh, shoot, this is not working. Okay, how could I cut from this to this? And then you realize, oh, wait, yeah, I can do that. All I need is one shot of this and then this will all work. The amount of times I said, all I need is one shot of this uh, on every film set, scare package, Peldor, camera scare, all of them. I mean, it's, it happened daily. It would happen daily. So you just, you have to be you know, thinking about those kinds of things. So yeah, editing in your head, uh, realizing that it's not as easy as it looks to these other people, that everybody's struggling. We're all insecure about it. And, and we all like right now, I mean, I'm terrified. And the fact that I've just now realized that you watched the Peldor, I did not know that like terrifies me because <laughs> I'm like, Oh no, somebody else has seen Peldor. And, uh, but I love it. everybody's responding so great, but it's, it's still just this. And it's also a very personal story for me too. So it's just, this one's a hard one. This is a really hard one for me. Really? But we, we deal with all that, you know, and, and you have to, you know, that's all there. And then you're going to have to ask for money from somebody. You're going to yeah. have to do it. Yeah. Well, when it comes to that, I feel like there's a lot of filmmakers out there who have their script, they have their great idea. They don't know where to start in terms of asking for money. So, I mean, what was your process? Did you just come up with a list of potential executive producers? Did you, I mean, it clearly tapped your network, but was it a matter of putting a list together of people you wanted to talk to and then cold calling, cold email, smiling and dialing? No, actually, well, the first thing we did was we said we have to separate ourselves from the other people that are making the same calls we're making. So before we can make a call or make an email or do anything, what can we do to make ourselves more desirable? What, how can we, so you're about to go on a date, right? And, and are you going to, you know, leading up to that date, are you going to get your haircut and wear the right, the right outfit? And you're going to think about all those aspects. Well, if you're not thinking about that when you're pitching your movie, then you're, you're not going to get a second date. So the same thing needs to happen. So we spent a lot of time, obviously, getting a script where it needs to be. But then we also created pitch decks, very in-depth pitch decks. You go to Film Grabber, grab stills from other, 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 you know, uh, other films that inspire you. Find ways to convey your message. But don't, don't get a shitty one. Find somebody who's good at this. You know, again, I originally we hired someone and then I realized it cost money and I taught myself how to do it. So I do the pitch decks now. I, well, now we, I finally have somebody who does pitch decks for us in my company. But for the longest time, I just did them because, okay, I got to do it. Again, it's like the schedule. Okay, I got to do this. I got to make it look better. I got to figure this out. So I would do YouTube tutorials and teach myself how to do it. And I did, and I did it. And you know, that's, that's the approach you have to have with everything, but there's that. And then we would also do, so we have a really, really nice slick pitch deck, cool visuals, you know, we're writers. So we could come up with cool, we, you know, hopefully a little witty, you know, interesting ways of conveying those messages. And then we also would do these ripomatic tone reels where we would take, you know, images and video, you know, from all these other movies across music and then make this, you know, this tone reel of the film that should give you goosebumps, you know, when you're done with it and, and think about the emotion that you want to evoke. If it's a comedy, it should, you should be laughing. You know, if it's 
for camera obscura it, it it had a lot was there for you know the pale door as well like we all of these we tried to you know you just tried to to create these in the best way that you can so that way when somebody sees our information our emails and, and a lot of times it was emails we would personalize those emails we're not copy pasting those we are researching who the people are we're understanding what it is they've bought what they've done what's there and then I would also, I would just say, hey, I'm going to be at such and such festival. Uh, I'm a big fan of this. We've got some movies. I'd love to talk to you. And just be cool. Like, when you're there, don't go in and, you know, pitch the hell out of something. Just be friendly. Be nice. Be supportive. You know, these people that you want to have make your movies, retweet. Support their movies that they're already making. Be an advocate for that. Be somebody who's trying to, you know, who's who's a positive force in the industry. And if you're doing that, people will notice and they'll remember you. Yeah. Um, you know, we we've never had a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe or anything like that. But yet I remember there was one person who gave us money because he apparently looked me up on. I don't remember if it was Kickstarter or something. He's like, you've given to over 200, you know, whatever films. You've never raised money once for a film. So I'm giving you money. And I was like, whoa. And I didn't, that, I didn't think about that. That was never the intent. You know, it was just, it just yeah. happened. But people want to work with people that are, you know, nice and, and, and will listen to you and, 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 and that. So, you know, that's, and that's the other thing. That's the last. You just have to be a good person. Yeah. Just be a kind person and, and be empathetic. And, and eventually, you know, I've been friends with a lot of people for a long time that I would love to make movies with but I'm not pitching them every day to make movies, you know, we're friends. And now it becomes natural. It's like, Oh yeah, you should do this together. Yeah. And it just becomes this, this easier thing because we've spent so long fostering that. Yeah. It's a matter of building a community who you eventually can make movies with. It seems. Yeah. I mean, that's scare package was a big part of that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we, it was like, okay, here's the directors that we love. Let's work with them. And, And for us, it was kind of an, almost an audition for a lot of them of, wow, we loved making this with you. Let's help make your feature film now. So we're working with a few of them. Oh, that's awesome. Films. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. You know, it, it's yeah. great. Get a little taste of how, how you can work together and how you can expound on that. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I forgot to ask you about Scare Package. How did you get Joe Bob Briggs involved? Wow, yeah. So so look, I've been a diehard Joe Bob fan my entire life. You know, I'm one of the Monster Vision kids. Uh, I, I, I made my own Joe Bob Briggs hat uh, for, this was like, you know, four years ago or whatever. Nobody was talking about Joe Bob Briggs. Any of this stuff was going on. And I was, I would always wear it, you know? And, uh, I remember we, in writing that movie, again, everything was so self-referential. And I was like, well, if this guy's the, the know-it-all horror movie guy, he needs to, he needs to pattern his life against who he thinks is the know-it-all horror movie guy. And like, that's Joe Bob Briggs. Like, if that's, that's the world, that's what this needs to be. <clears throat> yeah. So, so we wrote in just kind of jokes about Joe Bob, but it wasn't going to be him. I was like, you know what? Joe Bob needs to show up in this. Damn it. Like, yeah. And I was like, and, and I remember people were like, well, why? Like, he's not even doing anything. I mean, this is before Shudder. This is before all this stuff had happened. And I was like, you know, yeah, but I mean, he acted in goddamn casino. Like, he can act. <laughs> like, let's, let's do this. Like, what are we talking about? Like, reach out to him then. That means he's probably, probably be down. You know, he'll, he'll see what's going on. And he had, he had also just followed me on Twitter. So that was kind of like a big moment for me. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, Oh, okay. So, you know, maybe there's a way. So I just direct messaged him and I was like, Joe, I'm, I'm a horror, you know, horror fan. I'm a fan of your work. We have this part we've kind of written for you. Uh, you know, love for you to take a look at the script and see, and, 
And uh, he read it and he was laughing and thought it was so funny. And he came out and was an absolute joy, an absolute joy. And we, we rewrote some of the scenes together. Uh, some of his dialogue we wrote together on the day, which was a lot of fun. Um, he just, he really embraced the, uh, the hating of Rad Chad. <laughs> and, and I just thought that was so funny that he got into that. And, um, and even a line that a lot of, we've had a, you know, the response has been just so amazing. It's just so humbling to see. And that's a really small movie. And that's a really small movie just made with my friends. Like that is down and dirty in every way. And everybody's responding to this thing and people are loving it. And, uh, but one of the quotes a number of people have said is they love the line from Joe Bob about, uh, you're the reason why, um, you're what the internet did to film criticism. <laughs> yeah. That was a, that was a Joe Bob line. Like, I got a chuckle out of me. Yeah. He's like, I want to say that. Like, I got this. And I was like, you know what? That is the most Joe Bob line period. Let's go for it. You know? Nice. Um, so yeah, he was great. You know, it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Well, that's awesome. Well, what are you up to next? So we are, we're producing films for some other folks. Uh, I'm really trying to get a project up with uh, Emily Higgins right now, who, uh, she was the director of Cold Open in Scare Package, the, the Cold Open, uh-huh. which is our Cold Open about Cold Opens. That should tell you all you need to know about that movie. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so we're, we're trying to get uh, a project off the ground right now with that. So we've been talking to more folks there. Uh, I have another project that I'm doing with a good uh, producing partner of mine, uh, Mark Center, that we're trying to get going. We're really hoping that one will happen right when we're done here of the pandemic and we're in a better, safer spot in order to, to shoot that. And then, you know, we've, uh, God, there's a, there's a lot of, there's fun stuff I can't quite say yet that we're, we're like really close to finalizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have uh, the movie I wanted to make before the pale door, which is my sci-fi kind of horror body, body horror movie um, is, is something I really want to do. So, because again, we, we just want to keep making different unique spins on all this. So, you know, we've, we've made our psychological deep, you know, evocative psychological thriller. We've made our completely over the top referential, you know, uh, horror comedy and scare package. We made a horror Western now that's just like deeply personal story and all that. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, sci-fi horror, that makes sense. Let's go into that next. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, great, man. Anything we didn't touch on that you've uh, been wanting to talk about? No, no. Again, um, you know, just, just know that if anybody gives you an opportunity to talk about what's going on today, take it, um, what's going on in the world and that we have an opportunity right now. Like this is an actual opportunity. Like this is an actual opportunity right now in front of us. So, you know, go to your local authorities, find ways, uh, you know, I'm here in Austin, they're, they're giving more time to vote on, you know, the, the funding that's going to the police and all this. There's just, there's laws, educate yourself, listen, please listen, listen to people. And, um, you know, movies, movies are meant to be an escape. And I think a lot of people are going to need some escapes. And that's great. And I'm really excited that hopefully these movies can be that for people. But they're going to have to come back to the reality after those movies. And, and that reality, we need to make a better reality for our fellow people out there. And that's on us. And that's on me. And, you know, so I appreciate, you know, giving any mini platform I can to talk about that. Absolutely. Well, on that note, Aaron, real pleasure. Thank you for being here. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a blast. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for watching our weird little movies. <laughs> Any uh, parting advice for those aspiring horror filmmakers out there? Man, just get 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 those scripts ready. You know, get those scripts ready. Take more time on those scripts. 
You know, we, we get sent scripts all the time from people. And a lot of times, they, it's very, very rare we get a script and we say, whoa, this is ready to go. So, really? They're just like, think, they feel like first drafts? Not even at the first drafts. There's just, you know, I, definitely people have put some time into them. But, but there's just, there's obvious things that are, you know, hey, this is an easier way of doing this. So there's, there are ways of saving money, time. Um, like, do you really need to have this many characters for this reason? Like, can you consolidate these characters? Can you consolidate these locations? And then thematically too, you know, it's like, is this really, like, what are you trying to say? Like, really understand, you know, we'll ask you, like, what are you trying to say in this movie? Not just, no, 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 not, not the plot. Don't tell me the plot. Like, tell me what, why do you have to make this movie? Like, why do you have to make this movie? And you should have a good answer for that. And if you don't, get back in your script, get back and think about yourself and what you're trying to do, and then, and then come back when it's ready. But um, I just think too many people are sending things out that aren't ready. Um, so don't, don't rush them. Don't rush them, you know. But, uh, but yeah, but then, you know, we're happy to, to you can send scripts as well, or not scripts themselves. You can send us inquiries about scripts. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just, you know, be, be prepared <laughs> and, and take more time and, and, and trust the people who might give you those hard notes. Don't just give them to the friends that you know are going to, you know, echo back what it is you're doing and saying, this is great. Yeah. Get the people who go through and give you the real notes, find those people. Those are your real friends. Those are the ones who are doing that. Right. And you need that. That's important. Makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Aaron, thank you again. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. And now, as always, for some key takeaways from this conversation with Aaron Kuntz. Number one, center yourself. We talked about this a little bit with the Natalie Erica James interview, but it's worth reiterating. If in the midst of a shoot, you as the director are experiencing negative emotions like anxiety, fear, anger or frustration, there's a good chance you're going to become irrational and make wrong decisions. Counter this by finding a way to center yourself, even if it holds up production, but don't go crazy because it shouldn't take that much time. What Aaron does when things get hectic is he goes to his car to regroup. He puts on the music along with cool air and he just breathes and two minutes is all it takes. Taking the time to do this is not lazy and it's not self-indulgent. It's essential because nobody wants to work with an overly emotional director. Figure out what your way to get centered is and make a habit of doing it on set. Number two, Allow your shit to stink. Aaron mentioned that his first few screenplays and shorts were not, by his own admission, all that great. But it was still important that he make them, if only for the sake of learning how to make films. If you wait until your writing voice is perfect before writing that screenplay, you'll probably never get around to writing it. Similarly, if you wait until you feel ready to be a director before trying to direct, there's a chance you'll never do that either. So even if you don't think your material is that great yet, make it anyway because you'll gain the knowledge to get better. Now, it's important to emphasize that this is no excuse for shitty writing or a lack of effort. You should and better work your ass off. But if you're insecure about your work, it's still critical that you push forward anyway because what many people don't seem to realize is that the only way to prepare for becoming a director is by directing. Number three, insist on that phone call. While pitching his first feature, Camera Obscura, Aaron had been turned down by a production company that he really wanted to work with after months of conversations. When they turned him down, he was level-headed about it, but he requested a phone call with the head producer. 
As you know, this one single phone call is what ultimately led to his movie getting greenlit. It's important to not only never give up, but be very strategic about how you push forward in the face of rejection. After being turned down, Aaron made a very simple and reasonable request for that one phone call, and that can make all the difference. When it comes to this business, there's such a razor's edge between things getting made and things not getting made that it's frightening. You really have to be insistent. Plus, a lot of producers producers will actually often test the resolve of a director that they want to work with by rejecting them at first and observing how they recover. So always, always insist on that phone call. Number four, you don't have to be a 20-something. In fact, it's probably better that you aren't. Directing requires a lot of intelligence and life skills like time management, budgeting, and leadership ability. Aaron didn't begin directing until he was in his 30s, and his knowledge and professionalism tremendously helped him push forward. He was more prepared and able to manage high amounts of pressure, all of which made him a great director. So if you're not in your 20s, take heart. You're probably way more prepared to helm a movie now than you would have been at 25. I've personally been guilty for coming down on myself for not having a feature on under my belt by the age of 30. Spielberg made Jaws at 26, for Christ's sakes. But as Aaron said, he's Steven Spielberg. If you're older, you're wiser. And your insight, intelligence, and sophistication can only make you a better director. Number five, write every single day. Aaron writes for an hour every day. Every day, no matter what. Unless, of course, he's directing. But what's interesting is that to him, writing isn't always necessarily putting down words on the page. In some cases, writing can be as simple as thinking about the material because this is effort towards the development of the work. Therefore, it's important that you do it every single day. Depending on the type of writer you are, you may not want to overburden yourself with a word minimum. So maybe consider a time minimum instead, during which you write if you can, and if not, you simply think about the material. Here's the thing. If all you do is sit for an hour and think about what you're writing, the connective tissues of the material will remain intact. And this magic thing will happen where you naturally will start writing in your head throughout the course of the day. Your brain will naturally keep developing the material and solving the problems of your script subconsciously. But the only way to stay this sharp with your writing is to do it every day. So however you choose to write, do it every single day. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. And thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.